is the creation of the first Israel, or fleshly Israel, including uh, settling them in the land of Canaan and making of them a great nation. And then secondly, there is the part of the promise where God promises to bring in through them the Messiah, um, uh, through whom redemption and salvation would be made available to all the peoples of all the, of all the earth. In verse 1, it says, After these things the word of Jehovah came to Abraham in a vision. After these things is, a, is an expression that no doubt refers to the things that had happened in the previous chapter. And his uh, uh, going down into Egypt, um, his wife being made a, a, a part of the harem of, of the Pharaoh there until God affects her release. And then, of course, his, his uh, war with the, uh, with the kings and his uh, rescue of, of Lot. After these things, uh, it, the record says, the word of Jehovah came unto Abraham. God is the author of the promises that, that uh, were made uh, to, uh, to Abraham. And so... It says, the word of Jehovah came unto Abraham in a vision. Now, many commentators, and I'm inclined to agree with this, feel that feel like this entire chapter uh, is, is, the, is the vision. It tells about the vision. There are some who, who pick and choose and say this part of it is a part of the vision and this part is not. But I think, the, the, the chapter as a whole is better understood if we think of it in terms of a vision. I think I suggested last week that you might think of it somewhat like the vision that Peter had in Joppa on the housetop, you know, when the sheet was let down to him. But um, uh, the mingling of day scenes and night scenes and all of the hours that transpired... Um, uh, in, in the telling of this vision, the slaughtering of the, of the animals that are mentioned, the darkness, his deep sleep, all of these things, I think, and the difficulties that are associated with them, if you think about it in, in any other way, are, are met much uh, easier explained and understood, I believe, if we think of it as being a, as being a, a vision. And uh, God spoke to him and said, Fear not, uh, Abraham. I, I don't know exactly what he's referring to here when he says, Fear not. Um, all kinds of suggestions about that. But he said, Fear not, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And then in verses 2 and 3, uh, Abram said, O Jehovah, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And he that shall be possessor of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born to my house is, is uh, and uh, lo, one born to my house is my heir. And so 
Then in verse 4, Behold, the word of Jehovah came unto him, saying, This man shall not be thine heir, but he shall uh, come forth out of thine own bowels and, and be thine heir. And he brought him forth and said, Look toward the heavens, and this is where, as we talked last week, he shows him the number of stars and so forth, and again promises him that his seed will be numerous. And then, then the verse in verse 6, he believed in Jehovah and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. Now this is one of the outstanding verses of the Old Testament. It's uh, quoted in the New Testament and it's interesting the things that commentators say about this. To me, it's interesting that some of them suggest and want us to believe that here for the first time, for the first time, Abraham was justified. But I find that hard to believe for a number of reasons. We already saw in verses 1 and 2 where God said, uh, I am your shield and your great reward. These things would not be said of one that that, uh, had an alien relationship with God. And not only that, prior to this time, Abraham had on a number of occasions believed God and obeyed Him. Uh, he, 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 he obeyed Him when He called Him in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, that, that he by faith Abraham uh, went out, not knowing where, where he was going. He believed God when he left Haran, obeyed God in going into the land of Canaan as God had asked uh, him to do. And so on a number of occasions prior to this, um, Abraham had manifested faith in God by his obedience to, to his will. And we'll talk a little bit more about that before the time is up. And then he talks in verses 7 and 8, I'm Jehovah who brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave, <coughs> gave thee this land to inherit it. And uh, um, verses 9 through 11. Take me a heifer three years old and a she-goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took all of these and divided them in the midst and laid each half over against the other, but the birds divided he not. And the birds of prey came down from upon the carcasses, and Abram uh, drove them away. Um, I don't believe that the function of this slaughtering of these animals, I don't believe we're reading here about a sacrifice. Commentators tell us that, that this... This was a kind of a ratification of a covenant or the, the making of a vow, as it were, that was, that was used already at that time by a number of the nations uh, of the world when, when, when there would be some agreement or some covenant made between, uh, between people. And in those covenants... Um, they would, they would lay the animals out as, as we're told here that, that Abraham did in this vision. 
and both parties would walk through the midst of the of them as a kind of way of, of somehow demonstrating uh, that. You'll notice here that Abraham, we're not told Abraham is not said to have walked in between this. And God and God's uh, appearance was in the form of this uh, uh, of this uh, in the next few verses. Um, where is it? What what verse? Yes. Verses 15 to 17. But thou shalt go to thy father in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age, and the fourth generation shall they come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a flaming torch that passed between these pieces. And so God, uh, God in, the, in, the, uh, in this vision, God in the pictured as a uh, flaming furnace and a, or, or a smoking furnace and a torch, passed in between the pieces, sealing, as it were, His, uh, uh, his promise. Uh, to uh, to uh, Abraham that, that 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 he had made to him. Notice it says, uh, you're, "You'll go and you'll you'll go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried at good old age. And in four, and in the fourth generation, uh, your descendants will come back." Now, in and in, in later in this chapter, in another place, he he mentions the period of four hundred years. Well, a generation. In our time, is not a hundred years, is it? But you got to remember, at the time this was written, the ages of the patriarch were were much more than than, of course, we live today. And so, the the, the mention of four generations, or or about a hundred years uh, per generation, it says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not full yet. The Amorite here is an expression. Uh, 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 has, has stands for all of the Canaanites, all of the peoples that dwelled in this land of Canaan that God was giving them. And, uh, and the uh, iniquity of the Canaanites at that time was not full. In other words, God would not arbitrarily displace one group of people just to bring in another people. But in time... Their actions and their uh, their continued distance away from God would be such to justify the 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 need for them to be uh, moved out or exterminated and and uh, taken off off of the land of promise, and uh, and so this is the vision. And then it says in verse eighteen, in that day, Jehovah made a covenant with Abram. Um, and so made a covenant in the sense, and we'll see this again in chapter 17, not that he hadn't already made a covenant, but made a covenant in the sense that he's now ratifying it, um, uh, restating it, confirming it, and uh, we'll see in chapter 17 he, ta- he goes a step beyond that. And so this is uh, in, in very likely... Uh, the, the entire chapter is an account of a vision 
that God gave to Abraham. And in this vision, uh, he expressed to him, he, he, he showed to him, he answered some of the questions. Uh, and that, that brings me to, to this point that I want us to uh, keep in mind. Um, when we talk about, there are two things. First of all, Abraham's faith. It was a what? An obedient faith. There was no example, there was no, uh, uh, there's no revelation about uh, Abraham merely having faith. He had faith, but his faith was always an obedient faith. And, uh, and secondly, we need to understand about Abraham that his faith sometimes struggled. Um, struggled, perhaps you would say, with doubt or, or maybe with anxiety or, or certainly questions. Um, and his relationship with God was not a linear relationship but it was more of a relationship with, with ups and downs. And really, if you stop and think about it, isn't that true of us as well? Uh, are there not times when, when we have questions, when we have maybe doubts, and God tested Abraham and, uh, in order that his faith might be strengthened? He tested him on more occasions than one. In fact, the greatest test uh, of his life, we've yet to read about, and we'll read about it uh, later on. But a lesson that we learn from Abraham is that God can use us in spite of our weaknesses, and that God will sometimes rescue us from our foolish mistakes because He's greatly pleased with our faith and our willingness to obey Him, even when that is not perfect obedience. And so uh, it seems that uh, Abraham believed God, but there were times when he had questions. And we're going to see that. In fact, we'll, we'll, we'll ease on into the next one at this point, and we'll see some of this more clearly. If you'll turn now to the 17th chapter, um, the third uh, event in Abraham's life that we want to look at is the one... Uh, recorded here, where where Abraham's name is changed, Sarah's name is changed. Uh, he's promised the son Isaac, and uh, and he's also given the covenant of circumcision. Uh, in verse two, it says, "I will my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly." Um, I will make my covenant. Again, he had already made promises to Abraham. He had already, in a sense, made a covenant with him. But he's saying, in effect, I will grant, I will carry into effect the provisions of the covenant. We've talked about it in the past, and now I'm going to actually uh, carry uh, into effect the provisions of the covenant. Um, this covenant was made uh, uh, with 
This is some, what we're reading about here is some 14 years after what we read about in, in chapter 15. Because you remember that uh, soon after chapter 15, a son was born to Abraham by uh, Sarah's handmaid. And, uh, and as we'll see, I think, later on in this chapter, it may, be, it may be that Abraham felt like, came to believe, that Ishmael was the son of promise. But we'll see, of course, that that's not the case. Verses 3 and 4, And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As far as me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. I want you to look at verses 3 and 4, and then look at verse 9. The antithesis of verses 3 and 4 is in verse 9. And as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. And so God is saying in verses 3 and 4, as for me, my part is this, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offsprings after you for an everlasting covenant. And I will be God to you, that is, I will show myself to be your God, demonstrate it as I had, as I have many times in the past, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land in which you sojourn. But as for you, in other words, God said, this, this is me, this is what I will do. But as for you, God said to Abraham, God, I will require you and your descendants and all generations after you to keep my covenant. And that as a sign of this covenant, I will give to you the, the uh, covenant of circumcision uh, of yourself and of every male uh, in the house. And so, it's not an additional covenant. It's a, it's a further explanation of the covenant that he had already given and, uh, and the promise to now execute that covenant and put, it, uh, and put it into existence. Look at verses 17 through 19. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is ninety years, bear? And Abraham said to God, unto God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, thy wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. Now, there's a sharp difference among the scholars uh, regarding this, this, this verse. Um, there's a, what, what about Abraham's laughter? How is it to be understood? Well, one commentator says, it's not a laugh of doubt, but a laugh of joy and surprise. Another commentator says, renders it, not laughed at all, but renders it, he smiled. Another commentator says, it's impossible 
for modern man to comprehend what kind of laugh it was. Now, the uncertainty stemming from this passage uh, uh, is, is there because of the difficulties that the translators have in, in rendering this verse. The American Standard Version and the English Standard Version render it, as I read it a moment ago because I'm reading from the English Standard, they render it, and God said no, but Sarah shall bear you a child. Now, if this is the correct rendering, then I think one has to admit that Abraham's laughter was that of doubt, or at least of questioning. Uh, how, 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 how was this to be? How could this be? I'm, I'm 100 years old. I'm 99. I'll be 100 years old when the child is born, and Sarah's 90 years old. How could this be? What was Abraham thinking? What was he asking God? Was he saying, oh, that Ishmael might be the son of promise? Could it be that Abraham up to this point regarded Ishmael as the promised seed? If that was not what Abraham meant, then then it seems that God would have nothing to say. But then, as I said, Loophole, along with others, insists that the words, and God said no, should be rendered this way. Should be rendered simply as, and God said to Abraham, leaving out the word no. Now this is uh, the way the King James Version renders it. If you're looking at the King James, you'll notice that and you may have noticed when I read it that the word no is not there. It just says, And God said that Sarah shall bear your son. Do a translation also uh, translates it this way. Um, uh, and so if, if this rendering is correct, then it would suggest that Abraham's mentioning of Ishmael was not a proposal for God to accept him as a substitute, but rather his concern for Ishmael due, due to his being <coughs> replaced by another son. Actually, as I think about it, it may have been a little bit of both. Uh, it may have been Abra Abraham expressing the inner thoughts of his heart. How can Sarah and I, at our age, have a child? And he might have been also expressing, what of Ishmael? What is to happen to him? He's my son. So a mixture of faith and questioning, and yes, maybe even some doubt, is expressed perhaps by the statement. But in any case, God makes it clear to Abraham on this occasion that he would become the father of a great nation, changing his name to Abram, Abram father of, of many, and, uh, and that he would have a son by his wife, Sarah, despite their ages, and they would call his son, this son Isaac. And, uh, <coughs> and, uh, and the promise would be through Isaac. Now before we go to the fourth event in chapter 22, do you have any comments or questions? about either chapter 15 or chapter 17. 
Well, the fourth period in the life of Abraham that we want to look at closely is one that we're all familiar with, to some degree at least, and yet it's one that we need to, to look at very carefully. It's a story that represents, I think, the high point of faith in the life of Abraham. You remember we, we said that faith with him, like with us, is not always linear, but it has peaks and valleys. And, and, uh, and, and Christianity, our relationship with God is a process of growth. And uh, hopefully we're growing each and every day more into the image of God. And so that certainly seems to be true as we come to this story. And you know the story well. Abraham and Sarah had been childless through a long marriage. Um, They had even tried surrogate motherhood when Sarah gave to Abraham Hagar, uh, her handmaid, resulted in the birth of Ishmael. But God tells Abraham that Ishmael is not to be the son of promise. And so about 14 years after Ishmael's birth, Sarah... uh, became pregnant and bore Abraham a son in his old age, and of course in her old age as well. And Isaac was the son of promise, the one through whom the promise of descendants, land, and blessings to all nations was to come. And needless to say, as you can imagine, they loved him more than life itself. And then Abraham received the baffling Uh, incomprehensible command. Take your son, your only son Isaac, and go to a mountain in a land that I'll show you and build an altar there and burn his body to ashes as a sacrifice to God. How could this be? So much depended on Isaac. How could a holy God, the only true and living God, command that which was more typical of pagan gods than the God of Scripture. And just think of what must have been Abraham's agony as he tried to unravel this juxtaposition. On one hand, God's bright promise, and on the other hand, this dark command. The only thing more baffling than this command, more incomprehensible, at least to me, was Abraham's response. The Scripture says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And that's a question you might ponder. Why did he take these young men? You say at first, well, he took them so they could carry the wood. Well, later we read that Isaac by himself carried the wood up to the... uh, altar on the, on the mountain. But anyway, he, he arose early in the morning and, uh, and took his, and, and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. Think about this. Abraham rose early in the morning. Now we've been talking about the fact that God on, numbers, on numerous occasions appeared to Abraham gave him commands and made promises, covenant with him. And we've talked about how that 
though he was human, and, and at, at times no doubt had questions, he nonetheless believed God and acted upon what God had told him to do. He'd been doing this for years since God first called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And so he had developed this faith and this long life habit of obedience to God such that when God commanded him to do the incomprehensible, he arose early in the morning and started out to do what God had told him to do. Um, There was no reluctance, no hesitation. There was only faith. And that which authenticates faith, which is what? Obedience. Obedience, which proves faith to be genuine. And so for three days they traveled together and of of Moriah. Can you imagine what that trip must have been like? I've tried to put myself in that position uh, uh, as I've thought about this through the years. I always, when I think about it, I think about a, a time when my son John was, oh, I don't know, maybe nine, ten, maybe even eleven years old. We had a little a green filly a new, a new horse. And uh, I had ridden her a few times, and she was green, but John was a good hand even at that age, and he wanted to ride her. So foolishly, I later learned, I said, okay, and he got on the filly, started loping her around the round pen, and she came unglued, started bucking. And... Uh, it didn't take long until John's face would be coming down and her head would be coming up and her head hit him in the face and he fell to the ground. And when I went over to him, I could tell immediately that his, bro- his nose was broken. It was just all out of shape. And I thought about it a lot. He said, I've broken my nose, haven't having a dad and I said I think so son but you know I said we've got to go to the emergency room and he didn't fuss about it he accepted it we got in the car and we went and we uh, we I don't know if it was that day or the next day they had surgery and, and, and fixed it and so forth but I think about that a lot when I think about Abraham on this occasion traveling three days with his son. Uh, What must it have been like? Some of the conversation uh, is revealed, but there must have been so much more that was said during the three days journey. Or, perhaps there wasn't. Perhaps there was only awkward, agonizing silence. I don't know. But on the third day, Abraham said to the young men with him, Stay with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we'll come back to you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, 
And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb or a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. After reading this, some are inclined to say, Oh, oh then it wasn't such a test of faith for Abraham after all. Because he knew God was going to provide an offering. He knew that he would never have to take his son's life. But we need to be careful. We need to wait a minute. You remember Paul Harvey used to have the rest of the story? See, you and I are reading the end of the story. But the end of the story had not occurred at that time. True, Abraham's statement to the young men, we will come back to you, and his statement to Isaac, God will provide for himself a burnt offering. These are indeed great statements of faith, but not evidence that he had everything all worked out in his mind. I'm sure he had tried to sort it out all out on the journey to the mountain. Now, What's going on here? In my old age, God finally gave me a son. He told me this is the son of promise. And now He's telling me to take Him and offer Him as a burnt offering. So on some level that went beyond human reasoning, Abraham knew that God would somehow honor His word concerning the promise and bring life out of death. He even believed, according to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, he even believed that if necessary, God would do the unprecedented and raise Isaac from the dead. I want you to listen carefully to Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. He who received the promises offered up his only begotten Son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, concluding that God was able to raise him up. Now I want you to notice this expression. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Notice that expression, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. That has to mean that Abraham intended to kill his son, that he considered him as good as dead. So when the sacrifice was finally provided and God stayed his hand, it was as though he had received him back from the dead. You see, Abraham was about to take his son's life. And he didn't understand it all, didn't know exactly how God would work it all out. That's why it's called faith. By faith, Abraham did this. And, uh, and so, you know the end of the story. There was no hesitation, uh, no petitions for new instructions. Abraham simply did what he was commanded to do. He built the altar, laid the wood on it, bound his son and placed him on the altar and reached forth his hand to take Isaac's life. And we're going to come back to this minute. 
Not only is there great faith demonstrated here on the part of Abraham, but what about Isaac? What about Isaac? Standing there, allowing himself to be bound and placed on this altar. But the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Now I know that you fear God. This is what we call accommodative language. God already knew what Abraham's response would be, didn't he? But his experience, but this experience was not for God's benefit. It was for Abraham's benefit and for ours. God didn't want Isaac as a sacrifice. He wanted Abraham's undivided trust and allegiance. It was a test designed to strengthen him more and give him the assurance of his faith and establish him as the undisputed father of the faithful. Now, as the lawyers say, there's a sidebar here that I want to call your attention to. You may recall in 1 Peter 1, 10-12, the writer talks about how the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them indicated. Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises. And like these prophets that Peter spoke about, no doubt he thought about and wanted to know how or when the promises God made to him would be fulfilled. I'm almost three. After all, Abraham himself never really possessed the land of promise. Do you remember? He even had to purchase a piece of land there to, to bury his wife Sarah. But there's an interesting statement found in John 8 and verse 56. John quotes Jesus as saying that Abraham rejoiced that he might see my day, that is Jesus' day, and he did see it and was glad. Other renderings of that verse are at the thought of seeing it, he was glad. At the hope or prospect of seeing my day, he was glad. Now, I'm not sure exactly when or how Abraham saw Jesus' day. But I think it may have been, it just may have been, that Abraham's desire to better understand to see, as it were, Jesus' day was realized that day on Moriah. He may have seen it in the person of his son, who, like Jesus, yielded himself to his father's will as a sacrifice. And he may have seen it in the lamb caught in the bushes, a foreshadowing of Calvary. And finally, he may have seen Jesus' day in the figurative resurrection of his son Isaac from the dead. That, in my way of thinking, just may have been the way, or at least a way, in which Abraham is said to have seen Jesus' day. Um, I want to make one, I want to read to you something before we close. Why did God command such a thing? Well, you read the commentaries and there are all kinds of suggestions as to why God commanded uh, this in the first place. And there may be some, some validity to some of them. 
But the big thing, I think, uh, this particular writer, uh, I think, gets it right. He said, not until Abraham acted on his faith did that faith come to fruition. Until he lifted the knife over his son, his ultimate surrender to God had not occurred. Faith is not just a nice attitude toward God. It is submission to His will. To will it in the heart is not enough. The act is the ultimate test. And so, this act of obedience on the part of Abraham on this occasion was uh, a tremendous um, evidence of his faith that he had come to have growing, growing, growing stronger through the years as he had this relationship with God. And uh, so these are four events in the life of one of the great characters of the Bible. Abraham, we're going to be studying pretty soon now about another great character, Moses. But truly, these are two great men of faith uh, that we read about in the Old Testament. We learn a lot about not only God, but about the relationship that we're privileged to have with God uh, because of our faith. Okay, thank you.